part of learning how to pray is praying, but it's also praying according to the dictates of Scripture. But you can read what the Scripture says about prayer and not do it. You can read a book on swimming and never jump in. And so James wants to unfold for us how it is that God answers prayer. He's going to give us some very practical truths, among other things, on how to pray. Hello, and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Today, Pastor Carl will begin a new sermon titled, The Prayer That Gets Results, as we explore the dominion of faith in James chapter 5, verses 16 through 20. Let's join Pastor Carl in James chapter 5, verse 16 now. Take your Bibles with you this morning and turn to the epistle of James chapter 5. If you are joining us for the first time, we've been working our way chapter by chapter and verse by verse through this little short letter, just 108 verses. Some of you have read it once a week since we started last December, and I commend you for your faithfulness. Well, today we come to the final message here in the epistle of James. Remember, James is the half-brother of the Lord Jesus, and he is writing to give us instruction to put into practice. The writer to the Hebrews says, The Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. God gave His Word not to satisfy our curiosity, but to change our lives, not to make us smarter sinners, but to make us more like the Lord Jesus Christ. And so God's revelation, when it's read and when it is studied, it demands a response. When God says something, then I am obligated to respond. And so when you come to this little letter, you discover that there are a few books in the New Testament that are so packed with application. And so most of us as pastors will very often go to the book of James just because it is so illustrative of so many biblical principles. Some of you ever before we started felt like you at least had a broad handle on James. Now before I read our letter this morning and the verses that we want to focus on, let me just remind you once again, one final time of the broad context and then the immediate context. I hope by now maybe you have even the outline of James memorized that I gave you. As you read it over and over and over again, it's clear there are three sharp divisions. You can call them what you want, but there are three divisions. In chapter 1, he deals with the development of faith. And some of you, with each chapter, I gave you some key words to write out in the margin, and you've been doing that since we began last December. In chapter 1, he deals with three problems. The problem of pain as facing the trials of life that we encounter. Not if, but when we encounter various trials. Then the problem of temptation. We know something about how temptation functions so that God can give us the victory. And then the problem of not applying Scripture, being someone who just hears the Word of God but does not obey it. When you come to chapter 2, you turn another corner. In chapters 2 through 4, he deals with the distortion of faith. In chapter 2, he deals with our testimony. Our testimony in terms of our relationship to one another, our testimony in reference to good works, which are a proof that we genuinely know the Lord, and then our testimony in relationship to our tongue. 
God wants to tame the tongue so that we can speak the wisdom that comes from above. And then in chapter 4, if you remember, there are three problems he gave us that we should avoid. There's the problem of worldliness. God has called his church to holiness. It's not our likeness to the world that gives us a platform. It's our differentness from the world, our Christ-likeness that gives us an audience. Then, if you remember, he dealt with the problem of judging. When we speak unfairly of another brother in Christ, we cannot read a person's motives. Only God can read motive. And then, if you remember, the third problem in verses 13 through 17 of that chapter, the problem of perspective. He reminded us our life is like a vapor that appears for a moment and then is gone. And so we need to live with an eternal perspective. So chapter 1, the development of our faith. Chapters 2 through 4, the display of our faith. And then when we came to chapter 5, we came to the third section, the dominion of faith. And he gives us a picture of God's sovereignty, of God's dominion, exercised in three different dominions or dimensions of life. If you remember, he taught us three different realms in which we should display our faith. The first concerns our possessions. If you remember verses 1 through 6, he dealt with these believers, many of whom were poor because they were persecuted. They've been scattered by the Roman government. He's writing to the diaspora, to Jewish believers who are scattered like seed. And many were under the impression in, under the oppression of Rome and dependent on rich, wealthy landowners in a culture that was largely agriculture, and they were persecuted. So then in verses 7 through 12, he says you need to be patient. God is just. Someday God will make every wrong right. God's justice will be completely displayed. And he illustrated that, if you remember, with Job. Then we came to the third section, the final verses. And by the way, these sections are not unrelated because in the final section, he underscores the need for prayer. And of course, you cannot suffer and go through heartache and persecution well unless you are a man or a woman of prayer. Now, we saw that one of the nicknames for the Apostle James was Old Camel Knees. We have a record from Eusebius. He lived in 264 A.D., and he said that James the Apostle, speaking of this James, not the James who is beheaded, we saw there are four different James in the New Testament in the introductory session. This Apostle prayed so much that his knees were as hard as a camel's. In other words, what we're speaking of here is not some theoretician, but a practitioner, someone who lived what he said. This is not just something he heard or read in a book, so to speak. This is something he did as a way of life. And so he's giving us some practical advice, taking prayer, whether we're suffering, whether we're cheerful, whether we're sick, or whatever we're going through, and then putting it and fleshing it out in our everyday life. Okay, James 5, beginning now in verse 16, where we left off. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. 
Now, everyone knows we ought to pray, that we ought to pray more than we do pray. Samuel Chadwick was a great pastor in England who lived about 100 years ago. Many of you have heard these words. They're rather famous today. He said, the one concern of the devil is to keep Christians from praying. He fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless work, and prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil. Satan mocks at our wisdom, but he trembles when we pray. Yet Satan often does not tremble very much in the modern evangelical church because we don't pray that much, and we give him little reason to tremble. Why has he convinced so many of God's people not to earnestly pray? I suppose if you had an apparition of the evil one and he came and said, do not pray, we would want to pray all the more. But he's so much more subtle than that. He comes with his fiery darts. One, he may, may make you feel unworthy to pray. Who are you to pray? Look what you just did. Look what you just said. You don't deserve to pray. Or sometimes he tries to convince us that prayer really doesn't make that big a difference. So why even bother? And another reason sometimes is because we say we don't really know how to pray. Well, part of learning how to pray is praying, but it's also praying according to the dictates of Scripture. But you can read what the Scripture says about prayer and not do it. You can read a book on swimming and never jump in. And so James wants to unfold for us how it is that God answers prayer. He's going to give us some very practical truths, among other things, on how to pray. There was a brother by the name of Andrew Murray. He died in 1917. He was a Reformed pastor. He wrote a number of books on prayer that I've read. And he said this, it is in prayer that we change our strength for the supernatural strength of God. I believe that's true. Now, he also said that God works only in answer to our prayers. That was a pretty bold statement for a Reformed pastor who dumped everything on the sovereignty of God. And so it was a radical statement, but a healthy statement, though not entirely true. There are some things God does in spite of the fact that we don't pray. But much of what God does that is fruitful and lasting, he does in response to prayer. Dr. R.A. Torrey, another great pastor, died in 1928. He said, nothing lies beyond the reach of prayer except that which lies beyond the will of God. So just know that the church is not suffering today because there's not power available, that there's not a God in heaven who wants to work amongst his people. The church is suffering today because of a lack of human prayer. And the longer I am a Christian, the more I am impressed with the subtlety of the evil one. If I were the devil, I would not try to confuse in the trivial areas of life. I would try to confuse in the crucial areas of the Christian life. Satan doesn't mind if you evangelize, just as long as you don't pray. He doesn't care if you serve in vacation Bible school coming up, just as long as you don't pray. He doesn't care if you minister in Awana or teach an adult Bible fellowship, as long as you don't pray. He doesn't care if you pour over the scriptures and study all week long, just as long as you don't pray. In fact, he'd rather have you study the scripture without prayer, because then you will develop a case of spiritual pride and really disqualify yourself for God's use. 
Satan does not mind how compulsively active you are in this church just as long as you don't pray. James wants us to pray, and so he gives us three principles to encourage us, to motivate us on how to see really, truly genuine answers to prayer. There's a note-taking outline if you're new. Those online, you can print it out. Principle number one, answered prayer involves a confession. Answered prayer involves a confession. Seven times in verses 13 to 18, James mentions prayer. We've already seen when afflicted in verse 13, he wrote, is any among you suffering? Let him pray. In verses 14 and 15, he asks the question, is any among you sick? Let him pray. Now in verse 16, if you're corrupted by sin, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. Now, if you were here last week, we saw that the... uh, healing the physical problem that this individual or individuals or people in the first century were experiencing such that they called the elders of the church was related to unrepentant sin. Sometimes God disciplines our physical temple with sickness, with weakness, and sometimes premature death. It's an expression of his love. It's an expression of his grace. It's an expression of his kindness because those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And so they call for the elders of the church, the individual, not because the elders are medical doctors, but because they typically would have put this person under church discipline. And the goal is to restore. Now he broadens the principle. Look at verse 16. Therefore, circle that word. You always ask, what is the therefore, therefore, therefore? Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effectual prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. He's turning a corner. You know, every single word is inspired in the text. So you read it carefully, and you will see there's a change of pronouns. He's gone from the pronoun him to the pronoun you. In other words, while he is focused on the individual who is sick due to unrepented sin that brought God's discipline, now he's broadening this confession, not just from him, but to you in general. And he's telling us to confess our sins to one another. And the verb tense in the original is such, make it your habit to confess your sins to each other. The tendency sometimes... And our pride is to hide our sin rather than to confess our sin. You've heard it said, to err is human, but to cover up is too. And if you will study the history of the great revivals, you will learn that the great revivals and awakenings, and technically there's a difference, though we tend to blur the terms together, but the great revivals and the history of the church did not come from great singing, didn't even come from passionate evangelism, didn't even come from uh, great preaching. They came from great confession. It was when the people of God dealt with their sin before God that made the evangelism and the singing and the preaching so effective that swept tens of thousands into the kingdom. Confession. Confession of sin not just to God, but to one another. Now, the word confess, most of you know, it's the Greek word homo, homo homo sapien, homosexual. Homo, the prefix means the same, legeo, to say. Homo legeo means to say the same thing. That's what you're doing when you confess your sin. You're saying what God says about sin, what he has said about that, and you're very specific. 
So we need to confess our sins, sometimes not just to God, but sometimes to another person. You see the word sins there? It's plural. You might want to circle the letter S. That's not by accident. The smallest jot and tittle is inspired by the Spirit of God. In other words, what he is addressing here is not just, oh, I'm a sinner. We're all sinners. But he's addressing here specific personal acts of sin. So it's not simply, if I was wrong, will you forgive me? Or I was wrong, will you forgive me? Or I am sorry that I was wrong, will you forgive me? But I was wrong, I am sorry, and then you name it. You see, that involves a little more humility. Confess your sins. He's dealing here with specific acts of sin. Now, we need to ask, who is the one another? Now, if you're a Roman Catholic in some branches of the Lutheran church, where you have people go and confess their sins to a priest, this is a headquarters verse. But contextually, the one another is not in reference to a priest. He's broadened it to the whole body of Christ, to any believer at all. Now, some will quickly reject that, and they know that there's no biblical basis for confessing your sin to a priest, that he might somehow absolve you. And they say, well, this is the biblical basis for therapy sessions where we get together in small groups and we hang out our dirty laundry. And from about 1990 to 2005, scores of books were written in evangelicalism that fostered this way of thinking. Certainly, that's not what God has in mind. So some, in reacting to our Catholics and Lutheran friends who use this to confess to a priest or to get involved in some therapy session that does typically more harm than it ever does good, He's talking about confessing sin to another brother. Now, stop and think for a moment. In Scripture, there's direct confession to God. When, when you've sinned against God, then you confess directly to Him. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So our, our heart needs to be clear vertically, but it also needs to be clean horizontally. And Jesus taught this, of course, in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember what he said, Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, you come to worship the living God at the altar, and there remember your brother has something against you. He doesn't want you just to be religious and to jump through all the hoops and go through all the externals. He says, if your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go first be reconciled to your brother, then come and present your offering. So if our prayer is to be effective, we need to be clean vertically, we need to be clear horizontally. And that's really why James is saying here, confess your sins to one another and pray to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. He's not telling us to broadcast our sins because the principle that runs through scores of passages in Scripture is that the circle of confession is as broad as the circle of sin. So if you've offended your wife, you go to your wife. If you've offended your boss, you go to your boss. If you've offended a group of friends, then you go to that group of friends. If you've offended the whole church then you bring it to the whole church. And so the nature of church discipline. Some of you have never seen us practice church discipline because you've never ever been here on a Wednesday night. 
Now, often, and we do it on Wednesday night for a purpose, because it's a home crowd. It's God's people, typically. Very rarely do we even have visitors on Wednesday night, occasionally, but not many. Every Sunday morning, there are people who are visiting us here. And often, church discipline will stop. You go to your brother, you reprove him in private. Sometimes he doesn't listen. You take two or three, and that's the end of it. In fact, I would say that's the pattern in my experience and being in ministry 45 years almost. It's always, almost always stopped at the second level, but occasionally it goes to the third level. We've seen that on some Wednesday night services, six instances if I remember. And then sometimes the person doesn't listen to the church and he's excommunicated. Why, because we hate him? No, because we love him. Because when you put him out of the safety umbrella of the local assembly, you give God freedom to discipline him in a new way that would bring him to repentance, but you also protect the testimony of the local fellowship. But occasionally, I can think of two occasions where of those six, they came back. And so on a Sunday morning, we said, so-and-so, as you know, was living in adultery, but they've cleared and cleaned their walk with Christ and ask you to restore them back. That's important. Otherwise, an unbelieving world says they're nothing but a bunch of hypocrites there at Community Bible Church. We're a collection of sinners, saved by grace, and any of us have the capacity to do anything. But we also need to maintain our testimony as clean and pure. Now, if you were here last time, we saw some physical ailments that come from the loving, disciplining hand of God that can bring healing. So when the elders have a sense, no, this person is genuinely repentant. We recognize their sickness is because of the hand of God when we put them under church discipline, but they're genuinely repentant. And so their prayer offered in faith because they have a sense that this repentance is true. It's not, well, maybe they'll be healed or might be healed. They will be healed. That's the promise. And that's the context of the anointing of oil and the prayer over the individual. Now, interestingly, again, he's changing the pronouns from him to you because now he's broadening the application. And he uses this word healed. And by the way, the word healed here in the New Testament is used not just of physical healing, but spiritual healing. You might want to circle that word and write out in the margin, Hebrews 12, 12 and 13. It's the next book over. Let me read it to you. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble and make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. And the word here, iodomai, healed, is a metaphor in this context for spiritual strength. Strong hands, strong knees, strong feet that this writer is describing will bring spiritual health. It will bring spiritual endurance that you can keep on keeping on keeping walking with the Lord. Now, even so, James wants us to understand that before we can go to God in prayer, sometimes there are some things that we need to make right directly with him. But here, of course, he's focusing on other people. You say, well, pastor... What if I've gone to an individual and I've earnestly asked them as best I could in humility and I took full responsibility naming the sin, but they still would not release me? Well, 
you are released in God's eyes. Paul clearly says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. It's conditional here, meaning it's not always possible. Sometimes some people, because they have an unforgiving heart, either because they're out of fellowship or they've never been saved, and an unbeliever typically is an unforgiving person. Jesus taught that principle, but a believer can also withhold forgiveness. But if possible, as much as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. And I should say while we're here, if someone has wronged you, you have no justification to hold a grudge against them. And if you do, then you will break fellowship with God. Forgive one another just like God in Christ has forgiven you, whether they ever come and ask for forgiveness. Now, that's the first principle for effective prayer. Answered prayer involves a confession. Second there in your note-taking outline, answered prayer involves a command. It involves a command. Did you notice that the Apostle James commands us, it's an imperative in the original, pray for one another. Hold your finger here and turn to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 18. Go to Luke chapter 18, Matthew, Mark, Luke. It's the third book in the New Testament. Don't lose your finger here in James. Jesus also admonished us, and beyond his admonishment, he commanded us to pray. So if we don't obey the command to pray, then we are living in disobedience. Listen to these words, Luke chapter 18, verse 1. Now, he's telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not to lose heart. Now, some would place the emphasis of this parable to say that if you do not pray, then you will lose heart, you will get discouraged, and you will just quit. Now, that's true, but that's not the focus of this parable. And if you read the verses that would follow, that would be crystal clear to you. The entire parable is teaching about our praying at all times, and in the process of praying at all times, we don't give up. We don't lose heart. Jesus did not mean that we should always be in our knees. He didn't mean that we should always be in our prayer closet, that we should always go away with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Obviously, we can't do that. He's speaking here of a spirit of prayer. With the same encouragement, the Apostle Paul acknowledged 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, pray without ceasing. Now, the adverb in that verse, pray without ceasing, is one word, and it's used in the first century of someone with a hacking cough. You ever have just kind of a hacking cough, and there's just that little <coughs> tickle in your <coughs> throat, and <coughs> you got this constant reminder that there's a problem? He uses that as a picture, a word picture. Pray without ceasing. It's just a, a constant reminder of our need to spiritually endure and to keep on praying without ceasing. The Puritans would call this practicing the presence of God. And so Jesus makes a command here that we're to pray and not to lose heart, just like James says, pray for one another constantly, continually. And so prayer, of course, is more than just lip service. The lips and the heart are to be connected in Scripture. Today we have seen that answered prayer involves both a confession and a command. Please join us tomorrow as Pastor Carl continues his sermon, The Prayer That Gets Results. If you enjoy today's message, remember that you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program James 015. 
Please remember that you could support the ministry of Search the Scriptures by calling, or you can give online at searchthescriptures.org. Your generous donation plays an important role in providing biblical teaching and spreading the gospel. We hope that you will join us tomorrow as we continue to Search the Scriptures.